Well, I'm convinced that there's some unconfessed sin in RUF. <laughs> because <laughs> we've had two tornadoes in a row on Monday night at 8 o'clock. I'm just kidding. Um, everybody's looking at me like, oh no, he's going to start. Yeah, we might need to start confessing. I'm kidding. It's been crazy, hasn't it? Thanks again for making it out. I was telling someone, I don't know, I can count on one hand the number of times that it's rained on Monday night in my six years of doing RUF and two, like, massive weather systems in in, uh, two weeks in a row, so it's kind of crazy. Turn in your Bible to James chapter 5. We have finally made it to the last chapter of the book of James, and it's a good thing because we only have one more RUF large group, believe it or not. Uh, here's why. The 18th, we have Monday night, 8 o'clock, next week we'll be here. The next week is actually Easter Monday. Sanford doesn't take Good Friday off, they take Easter Monday off. And so you'll be coming in late, being with your families and all those kinds of things. And so we'll take that Monday off since it's a school holiday. The next Monday is actually May the 2nd and every last Monday of the semester, uh, while classes are in session, not during finals week, we do our end of the year party. And so that is May 2nd. So be on the lookout for the end of the year party. Come, have a good time, we'll have food, be a chance to see one another before you uh, head off for the summer um, or head to summer conference. The next week, which will be May the 9th, that is finals week. The week after that, Uh, we're heading to summer conference. And so let me encourage you, do not listen to Scott. It is not week one. It is week two. Scott has been going to Auburn too long, and he's got week one in his blood. Sanford always will go week two. So just remember from eternity forever, it'll always be week two. Uh, And so I don't even think the, the website will let you sign up for week one. So I don't, anyway... Week two, and let me say this, scholarships. If you really want to go and money's the only issue that's the thing that's holding you back, that is, should not be holding you back at all. See me, we'll make it happen. If you really want to go to summer conference, do not let money be an issue. We will help make that happen. You just need to see me, and my first question will be, how much can you pay? And how much, uh, so, you know, try to, if you could put up any money at all, it would be helpful to us. Because it's not, it's not free. There, there is a donor that will be helping you get there. And so if you got a scholarship, most likely you'll be, I'll be putting in your hands a thank you note to write to one of our donors that have helped. Because we're nonprofit. you know, every reason why we're able to be here on campus is because generous people, um, pay for us to to be here and for our budget, for scholarships and all kinds of things. So, uh, but please don't let that be an issue. James chapter 5. Look at the beginning of James chapter 5 and James' attack can only be described as seething. And that's the only way I know how to describe it. It is so fierce that Upton Sinclair, a novelist and social reformer, once read a paraphrase of this section in the book of James to a group of pastors and ministers. And he attributed this section to Emma Goldman. 
She was an anarchist in the early 1900s. And you know what the ministers did when they heard this section read and he attributed it to her? They immediately screamed that she should be deported for having said this. Then he later told them that it was actually in the Bible and that James wrote it in James chapter 5. I think you'll see how harsh the language is in James chapter 5 as I read. This is God's holy word. I'm going to again read from the NIV this evening. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is God's word. Let me pray. Jesus, um, I'm not sure there's a stronger, harsher, more fierce passage in all of Scripture. But you tell us that all Scripture is God-breathed. That it's all useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting in all righteousness. This is part of your holy word. And so uh, you have something to teach us about wealth and riches tonight. Thank you for bringing us here and for protecting us. Again, as I said last week, it's no accident that we're here. We're here because you want us to be here. Because you have something to show us uh, through your uh, words this evening. Let's We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me remind you again, it seems as if James is kind of being haphazard here. Again, if you've been here all semester, well, he's not. Let me set the context one more time for us and remind us of where we are in this book of James. This theme that he is continuing, even here now in chapter 5, he actually started over in James chapter 3 at the end. If you flip over there in your Bibles, you'll see at the end of that chapter, James says that we need to live according to the wisdom from above, not according to the wisdom in the world. James chapter 4, Verse 10, he says, the key to living according to the wisdom from above is humbling ourselves before God. And then last week, we saw that he said the uh, key or what it looks like to live according to the wisdom of the world in humbling ourselves is to actually humble ourselves before God in the making of our plans. If you were here, you remembered that we talked about 
that God wants us to acknowledge Him in the making of our plans. Sure, we need to make plans, but we need to make them with open hands, not clutched fist. Likewise, he continues this theme. And tonight, James goes in from talking about making future plans and holding our lives with open hands to talking about money and how we need to humble ourselves uh, before God as we consider our money. And we are to hold our hands openly uh, in regards to our money. Why does he address this topic? Well, it's same as last week. One of the main areas, just like we're tempted to control our lives and our plans, James knows that we are tempted to control our money. There's no area where we're more tempted to say, this is mine. I've earned this. I've made this money. I'm going to do what I want to with it. That's often our attitude. There's no area where we're more tempted to not humble ourselves before God. And so he addresses the issue of money, which is very close to our heart oftentimes. Look at verse 1. Interesting, isn't it? If you were here last week, you know that he begins the same way, doesn't he? As he does in verse 13. Now listen. Let me review. Here's what James is doing. James is grabbing us by the chin. Remember I said how your parents might have done this to you when you were little? Grabbed you by the chin and said, listen to me. I've got something very important to tell you. James is doing that here. He's doing it again. He did it with our future plans. He's squaring us up, grabbing us by the cheeks, looking us right in the eye and saying, listen to me. I'm going to talk to you about money. I'm going to talk to you about wealth and riches. Have you considered God in your wealth and in your riches and what he has to say about the danger of riches? So why is James so harsh on this topic of wealth? I mean, that's a natural question. I mean, those were seething comments. Is he mad? Is he mad at the wealthy? Is he jealous? <laughs> he's poor, and so he's envious and jealous of those that have money? Absolutely not. James actually loves us by telling us these things in this passage. You have, you have that person in your life. Uh, we all have them who tells us what we often don't want to hear, but it's the truth. And it's often hard for us to hear and it ticks us off for a little while and then we have time to think about it for a little bit and what do we automatically think? We think, you know, I'm thankful that God has people like this in my life and has put people like this in my life. Why are you thankful? You're thankful because there's someone out there that loves you enough to tell you the truth even though it is hard to hear. James is one of those people. He's one of those people in our lives. He loves us and he says that the most dangerous thing for our soul is to be rich. Let me be clear. 
The Bible's not against riches. The Bible is not against wealth. But the Bible does say that the love of money is the root of all evil. God gives people wealth to be sure, but it is an enormous, it is a huge responsibility. Why? Well, think about it. It's kind of logical. The more you have, the easier it is to be possessed by comfort. To be possessed by ease and to no longer really need Jesus because you got it all. You see, he is so, so warning us here about the danger of riches because riches quickly numb our souls to our eternal need. And that is why he is reserving the harshest language towards those that are rich in this life. He's basically saying, don't be fooled. You're going to die, and you will not be able to take it with you. And you will have to stand before your maker and give an account. And James is pleading with us, don't simply live for this world. Don't live for the here and now only. See, all of us are tempted to do that, aren't we? Me included. We often live like this world is all there is. And that is why I think this is one of the most important topics that we could look at, particularly during your time in college. Why do I say that? Because in your 20s, creating wealth, handling possessions, giving your money away, receiving, some of you are going to make lots and lots of money one day. And in in, in mainly in your 20s, you're going to start, start doing that, and you've never really been on your own doing that before. And so it is important for us to talk about these issues and how to handle them before we get off track and it's too late. And you've totally mishandled the blessings that God has given you. So we're going to look at this tonight, and the question is, how do we become generous people? That's the question. And if you see there an outline before you, we've got to beware of hoarding, beware of unjust gain, and then remember the generosity of Jesus. We're going to look at those things. They show us and show us how to become more generous people. Look, first of all, we've got to watch out for hoarding. Look at verses 2 and 3. Bertha Adams, she was a 70-year-old woman, She died all alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday in 1976. The coroner report actually gave the reason for her death and it said the cause of death was malnutrition. She was 50 pounds and she could no longer stay alive. The authorities entered her home and they were just shocked at the condition of our home. They said it was one of the biggest messes that they have ever seen. One seasoned inspector said he has never seen a home in such disarray. The woman actually begged her neighbors for food. 
so that she could eat. She bought her clothes at the nearby Salvation Army. From all appearances, this woman was a penniless recluse, a widow who had been forgotten and who was in a pitiful state. But the truth is that nothing could be further from the truth. Because you see, when the inspectors and authorities were cleaning out her home, they found two keys to two different lockboxes to local banks in the area. And the discovery in these lockboxes were absolutely unbelievable. They go to the first lockbox and they find 700 certificates of AT&T stock, plus hundreds of valuable certificates to bonds and other financial securities, not to mention $200,000 cash. That's just the first lockbox. They go to the second lockboxes, no certificates, but what they did find was $600,000 more in cash. You see, Bertha Adams' net worth was well over $1 million. Bertha Adams, her hoarding was tragic. But you know what James says about it? James says it's obscene. Look at verses 2 and 3. He reserves the harshest words for people that hoard their wealth on the last days. Look at 2 and 3. Your wealth is rotted. The moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. What is this term, the last days? If you've read a lot of the New Testament, you'll see that phrase over and over and over again. The last days is the time between the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection when he ascended to the right hand of the Father and the time of his second coming. So when are the last days? Right now. James is writing to his people in the last days, and we too are living in the last days. And so why is James so harsh? Well, we kind of hinted at it earlier. The more we have, the more we lose sight of the second coming of Jesus when he will come and usher in his kingdom. He warns us, yes, wealth gives you a measure of comfort, but it will never last. He's actually saying that our, the security and the comfort that wealth offer is only an illusion because one day you will have to face Jesus in judgment and your wealth will not matter at all. And so he is calling us not to be someone who hoards our wealth, but instead to be what? Generous people who give to those that are in need around us. He's saying don't be one that hoards wealth. Be one that holds your wealth with an open hand, that looks at your wealth and views it in, in a way that is ready for Jesus to come back. 
with an open hand, not with a clutched fist. If you clutch your wealth with your fist, look at what he says, verses 2 and 3. It will be hell for you. Your riches will eat away at your flesh. Now here's another question. So is James saying not to have a retirement account? Is James saying not to save? Absolutely not. The Bible talks about saving, planning for the future, and that Bible calls that wisdom. What James is warning us against is what the Bible is dead set against. The Bible is dead set against self-directed wealth that simply accumulates more and more stuff, more and more money and possessions in order to perpetuate your own comfort and your own desires and your own pleasures. The Bible is dead set against that. James is actually borrowing here from Jesus. You remember Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, what does he say? Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths come and eat and robbers steal and rust corrodes, but what? Store up for yourselves treasures where? Treasures in heaven. Someone that lives according to the wisdom from above will listen to what James says about hoarding and clutching our wealth. Secondly, beware of unjust gain. Look at verse 4. If you've been here this semester, James has talked a lot about the poor, hasn't he? Particularly in chapter 1, he talks about how they're treated. Why does he do that? Well, because the poor are very close to God's heart. The Old Testament repeatedly talks about the poor and how they're treated. Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15. Do not take advantage of the poor and the needy. Pay him his wages because he's poor and is counting on it. Listen to these words. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. That's what these landlords were doing in James chapter 5. And that is why James erupts. Look at what he says here. Verse 4, exclamation point. Look! James is saying that with emphasis. Your wages, you failed to pay the workmen who mow your field, and they are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of God. Why is this so wrong? Well, the poor were living day to day. And they needed to be paid in order to eat. It's also wrong because the landowners, notice what time it is. It's harvest time. I mean, these harvesters, these owners are sipping on fine wine and having the time of their lives while their workers are not even sure where their next meal is coming from. You see, we live in a world, don't we? We're squeezing every penny and every dollar out of people. It's common. And we are called to live differently as Christians. Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is the man who considers the poor. 
The word consider here means sustained attention to a subject. And then you act wisely and successfully in regard to it. In other words, God doesn't want us to just pay minimal attention to the poor. God wants us to get involved and to ponder long and hard what it would mean for us to improve their entire situation. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller tells a story. I highly recommend that book. He tells a story about a Christian man that he knows who owns several, several car dealerships in the area. And if you know anything about car uh, dealerships, you know that in the car uh, industry, it's common to negotiate the price, common to haggle with the person that is selling the car. And at one point, the CEO, the Christian businessman, decided to do some research. Look at, and listen to what he found. He found in his research that in general, men were more persistent when they're, with their negotiators than women. Not only that, that he found that Anglos pressed their interest in negotiations much more than African Americans. Let me translate. In other words, black women who were often poorer were paying more for cars than the more prosperous customers. See, the owner realized that there was a time-honored practice in dealing in car dealerships, but it actually took advantage of a class of people that needed to be protected and honored and helped. The practice was not illegal. Most people would not even say it was immoral. But you know what this guy did? He changed the company policy to no negotiation. The list price was the price. See, that wouldn't have occurred to most people. But this Christian businessman was considering the poor. And in considering the poor, he was seeking to do justice in every single area of his life, both public and private. And that is exactly what we're called to be as Christians. We are called as people to disadvantage ourselves, even financially, if it means bringing justice to the world. You all will have those opportunities. How will you treat people when you have influence? Will you steal, even if it's legal stealing? Or will you consider the poor and justice in everything you do? How do we become generous people? Well, we watch out for hoarding and we are aware of unjust gain 
around us. And then thirdly and finally, we remember the generosity of Jesus. And so how do we go from being people that close fist our wealth to being open-handed people? Well, I believe the answer is found, believe it or not, in the story of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. And I say that because read chapter 5 of Luke verses 1 through 6, that is Zacchaeus. There is no better description of him than the one we have read tonight. You know the story. He's the chief tax collector. He's wealthy. Jesus is coming to town. He's a short man. He can't see him. It's crowded, and so he goes down the road a little bit, climbs up into a sycamore tree, and Jesus comes right up to him and says, Come down. I'm going to your house. Think about this just for a second. Get the cartoon children's Bible story out of your mind, okay? Zacchaeus was a real man in real history who was rich and who hoarded his wealth and ripped people off every chance he got so that he could become more wealthy. And out of all of the people Jesus could have gone up to and went over to their house, Jesus goes up to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the chief tax collector, who was the scum of the earth, hated by his own people because he had sold them out for his own private interest. He was the bottom of the barrel. Tax collectors were included with murderers and robbers and considered in Jewish law to be beast unclean. And Jesus goes up to him and says, I'm coming to your house. I know who you are. Jesus knows who you are too. He knows everything you've done. He knows what you struggle with. He knows where you ignore him. He knows where you are white-knuckling your life and not being generous. Not only does he know who Zacchaeus is, but he wants to meet with him. That's a big deal. Think about that. He is saying to Zacchaeus, I am going to publicly associate with you. I want to be your friend. Do you see the gospel? You see, what is going to make us generous is the generosity of God. See, God has every right to look down on us. He has every right to judge us for our sin, but our God pursues tax collectors and sinners like you and me. You remember what happens next in Zacchaeus' life? He's confronted with the grace of God. Does he say, man, this is great, I'm forgiven. I'm going to start hoarding my wealth more and I'm going to go out and start ripping more people off. Is that what he says? No. When he meets Jesus, the grace of God invades his life. You remember what he says? Half of everything I own, I'm giving to the poor. 
And every person that I've ripped off, you see repentance here. Every person I've ripped off, I'm going to repay them fourfold. Jesus became rich. Or Jesus became poor. So that you and I could become rich. You see... The only thing that's going to change us is when the generosity of Jesus and what he has done for us moves to the center of our lives. And when it moves to the center of our lives, we will start to change and be more generous people to those around us. Jesus is coming to Samford. And like Zacchaeus, he's saying, Come to me. Will you come? I hope you will.